Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Rewild My Bio. I'm your host, Sean Slade. Today, my guest is a omnivore who has solved his dilemma. It is the wild and wonderful Hank Shaw. It was awesome to have Hank here on the show. Um, in fact, I couldn't even believe I had him. I've looked up to Hank for some time. He's been on the Joe Rogan podcast. He's been on episodes of Meat Eater. Um, and he is just the man when it comes to all things foraging, hunting, angling, gardening. And then the part that I really love, as does Hank, is the making of delicious, delicious dishes out of what he hunts and forages. So it was an awesome episode. We had Richard in the studio here as well. I said, hey, Rich, I've got Hank Shaw on the show. He says, no shit. So kind of invited himself in, which I was going to invite him anyways, knowing that Richard has been a longtime fan of Hank's books. And I do recommend all of Hank's books. If you're looking to get into foraging and hunting and you want to maybe brush up on your chefery, well then check out Hank's books because yeah, he's doing things right and he's been doing it right for some time. So um, yeah, we share a lot in common when it comes to, you know, eating locally and making good food from scratch. It's what Hank does and that's exactly what Richard and I were chatting with him about today. So it was uh, it was just a complete pleasure and a treat and Hank was such a great guy. I actually really enjoy um his answer to that question that I ask all guests at the end of the episode, which is, uh, what is your wildest dream for the earth? And yeah, in true Hank Shaw fashion, he just hit the nail right on the head. So definitely stick around to the end of the episode. And yeah, please check out Hank's website. You can learn more about Hank and find out where he is speaking and any of his new cookbooks that are coming down the pipeline. So his uh, newest pheasant quail cottontail is out now. And yeah, he's been... uh, well, he's been doing books for some, some time. And one of, uh, one that Richard I know has is Hunt, Gather, Cook, um, Finding the Forgotten Feast. So yeah, wonderful book. Highly recommend it to any of you guys out there who do not know about Hank Shaw. If you do know Hank Shaw and you're here to listen to this episode, if you think that you have a friend that um, would be keen on learning all about an OG in terms of rewilding, let's just call it in my terms, um, then Hank is the guy. So please share his work with all your friends out there. So anywho, what else can I talk about here on this intro? I want to say that I've been a little tardy on getting episodes out on time. And I apologize to any of you out there who are looking for that new episode every Tuesday. Um, I had some website issues a little while back, which of course, when it comes to this cat and technology, I just throw my hands up in the air and say, I don't know what I'm doing. So luckily, I've got a wonderful team of techies working on that and had fixed all that. So there was that, but then there's also my day job, right? And I might make it seem like I'm in this amazing place in my life where I can just produce this podcast and and not do anything else, but that is not the case. My nine to five is very much my PhD work right now and studying all things nature connection and nature relatedness and health. So yeah, so that said, um, been having a little bit of some deadlines here at the end of the semester that I've had to get going then with all things pandemic and just that little, those rabbit holes of, of research that I've been getting kind of lost in lately, I feel like they're, they're taking up a good amount of time. So trying to stay balanced, um, trying to obviously get my practices in and get outdoors, which, um, yeah, has kind of been put to the wayside. So I apologize to you guys if you've been waiting for episodes. Um, they're all going to be, like I said, I might be doing an episode dump here pretty soon because I still got months worth of good content coming your way. So anyways, I appreciate you guys. Uh, 
understanding and waiting around for these episodes to get put out. Speaking of other things that I've been doing outside of, you know, sitting at my computer is uh, turkey hunting. So that's been fun. That's been a lot of fun. And in fact, I've been sitting out at Richard's place. We've been doing some turkey hunting. Um, No luck thus far. I've been turkey hunting out at my parents' place, and I've done some scouting out at a public land bush nearby. However, that public land bush doesn't seem like the spot this year, um, at least from what I've seen. And furthermore, uh, I got the drop on some turkeys roosting just just off my property, um, or at least at my family's property. So I'm really excited to be getting out here this weekend and uh, doing some more turkey hunting. They've been tricky birds this year. I don't know what you guys think out there if you've been doing any turkey hunting, but yeah, tricky, weary birds they are. Um, you know, I think often people think of birds as not being smart. And these are, as I sometimes say, the smartest, stupid birds going. And I don't mean that with any disrespect, but you know, at the end of the day, they are a bird. So they're trapped within that framework of mental capacity, but man, are they smart, wicked smart. And they, they can learn you real quick and it's not too hard to educate a mature Tom. So yeah, let's just say fingers crossed. You know what? And I'm feeling good actually this weekend's my birthday turning 37. Um, got nothing really on the, on the go other than kind of some, some quiet time with family, Really, I'm going to be spending most of my day at the base of a tree doing some turkey hunting. So, um, yeah, so it's going to be exciting. My brother actually was a, able to harvest a turkey here this past week, and there is quite the quite the crew of turkeys out there. So I know that there's more out there. So hopefully, again, fingers crossed, maybe it's a little birthday present for myself. We'll see what the universe has to throw my way. But anyways, I uh, just wanted to give you guys that little rundown of what I've been up to in regards to my rewilding practices. Super grateful for the opportunity to be able to, you know, go after and hunt these animals. And just, you know, for the most part, if you're a hunter, you know that most of that time is just sitting in nature, breathing, connecting, being with nature. And um, yeah, what great medicine that is, even if... A turkey doesn't come out of the deal, but I think it will. So anyways, I'll keep you guys updated on that. And uh, yeah, please do check out Hank's website, honest-food.net. All Hank's books are on there. And I really do hope you guys enjoy this episode. If you do, please share it with a friend. Let me know what you think. Much love, guys. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Rewild My Bio, a self-help and alternative health podcast. I'm your host, Sean Slade. Join me as I share stories, science, and strategies to help you rewild your biology and redefine your biography. Welcome to yet another episode of Rewild My Bio. Today's episode, I am joined with Hank Shaw, hunter, angler, gardener, cook. Hank, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. And uh, I also got my good friend and co-hosting right here with me, Richard Vixenic. Richard, welcome. Hey, glad to be here. Super excited about this show. Yeah, I know. You're, this is totally an episode that you just 
bombed in and said, hey, I've got to be here to talk with Hank. So yeah, and as I had just mentioned as we were chatting, today is an awesome and first episode here for the podcast uh, talking about wild food. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And I thought, what better way to start talking about wild food here on this podcast than have Hank Shaw here. So yeah, we are super pumped to have you here, Hank. And I guess I'll start this episode by sharing my into hunting. So Hank, one thing I didn't mention is I'm super pumped to have you here because my mentor into hunting uh, is my uncle. My uncle had actually passed away a year ago today and he wouldn't listen to my podcast, probably not, except for this episode. I can guarantee you he would be, if I told him Hank Shaw was on it, he would be listening. But as someone who started hunting later in life, we need these types of mentors. And I feel like it's something that's somewhat lost in this day and age. Sure, there's a resurgence of individuals like yourself who are helping individuals get in contact with the land for their food. So for me, this is a very, you know, it's a special day for me to have you here. And my into hunting all came about when I said I want to take more responsibility for where my food comes from. Having been a holistic nutritionist, healthy food and eating food that makes me feel good has always been important. But I really fell in love with hunting specifically when I tasted the first tenderloin from the deer that my brother had killed about four years ago now, going back. So I got into hunting after going through a divorce. I found time to spend in the woods and it was my saving grace essentially. So when my brother, I have two younger brothers and one of them is a cook and great chef. He wasn't into hunting at this time. So me and my one brother were out there hunting. He kills his first deer and we come up to my family's, you know, up to the, uh, the pool area where we have our barbecue and that. And I called my other brother and I said, Hey, what are you doing for lunch? And he says, nothing. Why you guys got a deer, didn't you? And I said, yep, come on over. So he comes over, we had the tenderloins and as we had seen on Meat Eater, which is actually originally where I had um, first ran across you, Hank, was on an episode of Meat Eater and uh, we took the tenderloins and we wrapped them in call fat and we cooked those on the barbecue and for my younger brother who wasn't a hunter, instantly he went out, got his hunting license. For me, I fell right in love. So that's my story into hunting and I'm sure many people have asked you the exact same. So why hunting? Why fishing? Why foraging plants, Hank? What is it about this that you love? What got you into hunting? So you could you can consider this a kind of a three-legged stool with uh, foraging for plants and mushrooms being one leg, uh, fishing and seaside foraging being another, and then hunting being the third. So those are your three major sources of wild foods. And two of them I had been doing since I couldn't remember and probably since even before I can remember. You've got, you know, fishing. My mom is a, is a Massachusetts Yankee and, and my stepdad uh, was a big fisherman on the Jersey shore and my, my actual dad also fished. So, so, I mean, fishing has been a part of who I am since before I was really anybody. Um, I mean, there's pictures of me as a three-year-old with fish. Um, as far as wild plants are concerned, it, it was something that was important to both my parents, um, that people should know the names of plants. So there's a concept in foraging called green blindness, which is when you look out at any kind of green vista, you know, whether it's trees or a field or prairies or whatever, if you don't know what you're looking at, it's just green, right? So it was important for my parents to impress on me the importance of, no, no, that's an elm tree. 
that's a rhododendron. Those are blueberries. This is uh, cheatgrass, and that's you know prickly pear cactus or whatever. And knowing the name of something gives it not only relevance but gives you power, because at a very early age, once you learn families of plants, one good example is the parsley family, um, and that includes everything from poison hemlock to some of the most wonderful edible wild plants there is in North America. But you have to know, but you can see patterns and, and children are very, very good at seeing patterns, but actually better than adults at picking them up. So I became very good at that from a very early age. So I had these two things going on for really my whole life. And ultimately I found myself as a newspaper reporter in St. Paul, Minnesota. And my best friend at the time, a guy named Chris Niskanen, he was the outdoor writer. And as we had been fishing for the whole summer, that's when I moved to Minnesota, as summer turned into fall, he said, well, we should come hunting with me. And I had never really hunted at all. And I had zero experience with the shotgun and we we're going to go on a pheasant hunt in South Dakota. And I, I'll be honest, I couldn't hit this broad side of a barn. But what I saw on that hunt was really interesting because as an angler and as a fisherman, and I had fished commercially as well, you realize that you're not just a guy with a rod and a reel in his hand. You have to read currents, you have to know structure, you have to know tides and seasons and, and temperatures and all of these things that are considerably more detailed than just, oh, can you set the hook and what bait to use? So right. hunting, watching my friend Chris Niskin and do this in the prairies and the, the Great Plains of South Dakota, it, it was the same thing. So he would know that this is a field we're going to walk on and we're going to walk on it in this direction for a reason. So that every bit as much as the eating part, because he'd been kind of buttering me up for almost a year prior by giving me some pheasants or giving me some venison or giving me a mallard. And, you know, I was a, a chef first long before I was a hunter. And so I knew that wild game was always something special to eat and I had the skills to do it. So this felt like finally getting the third leg to the stool and you know, I like to tell Nisky that he created a monster because I hunt way more than he does now because it's <laughs> effectively my profession. And, and it's been, I've, I've never been bored since. And it's been bet. almost 20 years since I started. That's awesome. So you said you were a chef first. When exactly did you find your, you know, your craft or your niche as a chef then? What's that? So uh, I'm the last of four and there's a seven year gap between me and my next oldest sister. And so my mom and my stepfather really, really like to eat good food and like to go out to eat. And when you only have the one kid and the kid actually is interested in it, you can take him. <laughs> so I was lucky enough to go to some of the finest restaurants in New York and in Manhattan and that kind of area in the early 80s as a, as a young kid. And so I was exposed to good food from an early age and I developed a, you know, this is, this is, this is something I want in my life all the time. Right. And I started cooking as a teenager because, you know, it was just my mom and me for a while and she was very busy and she couldn't, she always felt that she needed to make me breakfast before school and that she was getting busier and busier and busier and, and, you know, the quality was kind of slipping through the cracks, like, you know, specifically burnt bacon and I hate burnt <laughs> bacon. Um, so at one point I just say, hey, mom, I'll just cook my own breakfast. Um, and that kind of started a path that went into restaurants in college and in graduate school. And I worked at an Ethiopian restaurant, worked at a fish restaurant. And so I learned, I didn't go to culinary school, but I, I 
worked in kitchens and I started as a dishwasher at an Ethiopian place and worked my way up to sous chef and did that for a few years. And then I became a newspaper reporter for 18 years. So it's, it's been, uh, I've basically traded one maniacal, thankless profession for another. Right. Yeah. Well, no, but to be able to, uh, you know, still have that thread of writing and I think it's wonderful because yeah, you are a wonderful writer as well. And, um, well, your connection, I know you spoke about it a little bit, but what was your, to go into a little bit more your connection, I find it's an interesting thread in a lot of folks who are, you know, whether you're involved in hunting, foraging, uh, leading nature walks, a bird watcher, I always find it fascinating about your relationship with nature. So we talked, touched on it a little bit there, but what was your connection like as a kid? Did you get to spend a lot of time in nature um, growing up where you were and everything? I mean, when you're, when you're in my generation, you know, go play in traffic was sort of literal. Um, <laughs> right. You know, I mean, this is the time where you, you know, you release your children on the neighborhood and, and tell them to come back for dinner. And so I spent virtually my entire childhood from before I can remember all the way through high school, just hanging out outside. Right. And I didn't live in anything, any place particularly nice. It was, you know, suburban old suburban town and on the main train line to Manhattan in New Jersey Mm -hmm. but there were parks and there was little wild places here and there and there was the shore I mean I I still love going down the shore and once a year for my early childhood mom would scrimp and save to be able to take us to a place called Block Island and it's a right now it's very very shishi it's much like Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket Mm -hmm. But in the 70s, it was very much not that. It was kind of the, the dirty cousin of, of fancy Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. And, and because it was such, we could afford to go. And that was an absolute wonderland. I mean, it just a, I mean, I still, I kind of don't want, ever want to go back because, you know, you can never go home again and, and the place has changed so much. But, you know, there's blackberries and blueberries and beach plums and, and rose hips and clams and fish and, and rose, I mean, and, and wild beach peas and mm-hmm. you name it. I mean, this is virtually the entire foundation of my relationship with not only food, but with the wild world starts at a place, uh, starts at this island, Block Island. And for those of you listening to this who may have ever been there, it's at least 10 years ago, it was still pretty much the same in terms of your ability to, to live off the land there. And it's, it's a very, very special place to me. That's awesome. There's, and that's just that you touched on uh, things changing. And that was one I know, Richard, you had. Well, that's a question. That's that a very similar story to say myself, for example, growing up in suburbia and having that, just that space to ride your bike to the Creek, do those sorts of things. And, um, you know, having kids now and really trying to invite them into nature and, and provide them with that space, you know, it, it feels like it's a little more effort these days than it was for, our parents, right, Hank, who said just be home when the streetlights turn on, kind of deal. Um, and I'm, curi- I get a sense that there's just a, there's just a, a generally a higher fear factor among yeah, parents. Right. So I think that it may be a reaction to the fact that there's a generation. So generation X is effectively a, a latchkey generation, mm-hmm. and generation Y and millennials are mm-hmm. tend to be a, a helicopter parent generation. So it's a pendulum that has swung and it has profound effects that ripple through someone's life to, as they go through it. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to a question. Right, yeah. uh, I mean, you, your, your first book was what's about a, what, a decade old now. And I'm just, almost, yeah. And I'm really yeah, curious congrats. about, 
because uh, you really, you know, you're you're putting out a ton of content. You, you know, I'm always getting a recipe in my inbox. Uh, you're tireless in 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 that sense, and you do amazing things, and you you bring a lot of things to the uh, literal and proverbial plate. And I'm just curious. Um, what is the sort of demographic of people that you are seeing that are starting to sink their teeth into foraging and connecting with nature? Are we talking, you know, white dudes in their 30s or are we talking a whole slew of um, different populations? What are you noticing? So the beauty of it is that, and this is really one of the main reasons that I keep doing this and what keeps me going is that it's everyone. It is you know, people on the left, people on the right, politically, rural and urban people and suburban people. It's people of all different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, I do a lot of work with indigenous foods. And so I, I work very hard to give credit where credit is due. So if this idea came from, a, a you know, a group of Paiute Indians in, uh, in uh, Nevada, I'm going to say, hey, yeah, I learned this from these guys over near Reno. And, you know, and that's appreciated, at least it has been in in the sense that, you know, one of the greatest problems of being an online presence and and creating things like recipes or, or techniques or whatever is to, um, is to give credit Mm -hmm. is to, Hey, you know, this is, I didn't create this recipe or this technique out of my own thin head. Sometimes I do, but when I don't, is to say, hey, this was, I found an origin of this in, a, in an ethnographic work or an old man in Reno told it to me, or I found it, you know, original thing in a cookbook and this is the cookbook and here's a link to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's not I only think, responsible, but it's also just like adds to the, the layers of the story and has these sort of cross-cultural connections that I think are just as important as the food itself, right? Those stories. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think so. I mean, yeah. it also, you, you know, we're all the sum of our choices, right? So I went to graduate school for history. And if you do any kind of serious history, you better damn well footnote everything. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if you don't, they're, they're going to whack you. Yeah. Well, I think paying respect is so key, especially in the sense of uh, rewilding in different elements of our lives. We find whether it be health, healing, uh, enjoyment, good food from all these practices that were, you know, traditionally uh, practiced in different indigenous cultures. And I think it is the day and age where we pay respect and we can uh, move forward with all this together. You know, I think it's a great, a great thing for sure. Um, well, next question I have for you, Hank, in regards to, well, actually, before we do that, Richard, did you want to expand upon that what? in any, or I, I guess in regards to what we had seen um I was kind of curious as as to like specific wild plants or say uh, changes you've seen in your landscape because you did mention that earlier. And I guess are there plants that are now coming on your radar or more abundant maybe or is there plants that, you know, we're kind of worried about uh, a conservation for? What's, uh, what have you seen in regards to say like wild plants or even uh, wild species that are animal species well, that are, are coming back to the I land? I live in the West. Mm-hmm. So the West – Foraging in the West is very different from foraging in the Northeast. So there are very few, there are very few species that I have come across in the West that are getting hammered. Um, mushrooming has become much more popular, so that would be an exception. Um, and there are a great number of 
public land areas that are starting to do some restrictions on mushrooming. Mm. And it's not really so much. So, you know, one thing you have to understand about mushrooms is that what we think of as a mushroom is really the apple, not the tree that's on the apple. So the mycelium underneath the ground is really the mushroom and the fruiting body is what we pick and we call it a mushroom, but it's really akin to an apple and picking it is just like picking an apple and not like the tree. Right. So even the, even the park managers and the land managers who understand that also are putting in restrictions because of just foot traffic. So it's, it's, it's as if you had a, a crowd in an orchard as opposed to just three people picking apples. Right. And I think that is a, is a case, uh, in the East coast, there is a, in the East coast, there is a, um, a, a fiddlehead fern called a ostrich fern and British Columbia actually weirdly gets it too. It's this bizarre. I don't understand it. It's, it's separated by the, by the great plains, but somehow the, this particular fern made it all the way to the, to the West coast up there. That actually can be over harvested very easily because, um, if they, if the uh, fiddlehead, a fiddlehead is a, it's just the shape. There's many, many ferns put out a fiddlehead, but if the fiddlehead on, on any given fern is is harvested too much, the fern can die. So greedy foragers can effectively kill their seed corn. Hmm. Um, another instance would be ramps. So I know Quebec hmm. has severely restricted the harvesting of ramps and. There's a bit of hysteria that goes involved that goes along with that. Um, it's don't get me wrong. If it, you can absolutely, you know, I have seen places where there is there is has been the tragedy of the commons, mm-hmm. mostly in the Northeast because of a, a international demand for this particular wild onion. Right. Um, but all of the professional foragers I know work on private land, and then they're not stupid enough to eat their seed corn. So they're not going to over harvest just for this year's dollar because it'll just screw them down the road. So the idea of, of commercial foraging rampaging the environment is not completely wrong, but it is a bit overstated. I see. Yeah. It's good to have that perspective, right? We got to kind of what sort of ethic are we stepping into this with and um, how can we be creative within those constraints? Like ramps being an example, like I I'm just trying to get a, yeah, I'm trying to get a statue. Kill the ramp. Right. Like if you want ramp bulbs, which everybody does, you have to basically kill the ramp. Now, now you can easily do this in a, in a huge patch because there's 48 trillion ramp bulbs in that, in a, you know, this one acre and what you're doing effectively is thinning them. There are, there's the other school of thought of just nip the top and that's cool too. But Mm. if you're going to nip the top, why bother? I mean, you just use chives or something else. They're really the, it's one of those things where from my perspective, I'd rather have fewer ramps that have bulbs and have lots of tops because like I have other substitutes for the tops. Right. Gotcha. What, uh, where do you do the majority of your hunting then Hank? Are you a public land hunter for the most part? That's what my assumption I guess would be, but where, where are you doing most of your, yes. Yeah. For, for the most part, most of my hunting is on public land, but yeah. that's, that doesn't mean I don't hunt private land. It just means as in the course of a year, most of my foraging and obviously fishing, um, and hunting does it, occur on Bureau of Land Management or or that sort of thing. Right. And uh, I mean, here in Ontario, we're about 85% what we call crown land. So public land here in Ontario. And uh, we were actually just chatting earlier about uh, some new developments down in southwestern Ontario. So we're just outside of Toronto, about two hours in, in Canada's London. And uh, wild hogs are actually coming to our farm fields. And um, so much to the point that now our... Uh, 
our ministry is essentially speaking about opening up hunting seasons potentially in the future. So, um, yeah, I just find it really fascinating anyways, all the, all the different developments throughout time. And, uh, yeah, I was just kind of curious how you, uh, how you go about finding your stuff. It's public land or private land and, and that. So, yeah, when you're working on private, on public lands, this is a great example of for, if you're talking foraging, um, you have to be a lot more circumspect about what you take. If you, if it is a, um, if you're not just picking fruit or nuts or things like, like fruit wants to be eaten. Right. Like, that's mm. the thing. You know, it's, you're not going to hurt a blackberry by picking blackberries. Um, but in the extractive foraging, like specifically things like onions or bulbs, or or where you're taking big pieces of plants that that the plants don't would rather have, um, you have to be pretty pretty careful. Now I have some some really good onion spots in the Sierra Nevada, and I mean I'll pick eh, maybe five maybe five, 10 pounds of wild onions a season, but it's over 10 or 20 or 30 patches that to my knowledge, no one ever, nobody else knows about because I've never seen any evidence of anybody ever doing anything to them. And I've been doing this for close to 15 years and the patches are, if not anything bigger than they were when I got there. Yeah, that's an important piece. And I know you've spoke a lot about learning from the land and, and being, I guess, cognizant of, yeah, are there footprints coming into this patch? There is a, so here in London, Ontario, we're called the Forest City and we've got tons of trails and that. And uh, with that comes uh, wild leaks or ramps. And uh, it's to the point now where I've decided to not even go in there because, yeah, just the amount of foot traffic that's in there, mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, you know, it's concerning anyways. So, but, uh, well, I was curious what, from a culinary perspective, um, what are some of the favorite things you like to forage or what are some different things out there that, um, you are now working with or something new to you? Hmm. New things. Mm, something new. It would have to probably be all the things in the desert Southwest. Um, I, you know, having spent my life foraging in temperate zones, uh, I've been fascinated by the diversity and the, the edibility of the Sonoran Desert. And it's the only desert I'm aware of that you can basically get fat in it, just living off the land. I mean, there's just virtually everything there is edible if you know what to do with it. And the flavors involved and the, the, the new fruits and the new vegetables and the, the, all kinds of things that are just new to me and they're endlessly fascinating. And there's, there's, I mean, we could just do an entire podcast just about the Sonoran right. Desert mm-hmm. because it's such a rich environment. And then that actually extends out into the other deserts of the, like the Chihuahuan and the Mojave and the, and the Great Basin. I'm working with a thing called Indian rice grass. Okay. It's a relatively large seed that the Paiutes have worked with for well, uh, however long they've been there. So, you know, five, 10,000 years. And they gather it and they grind it and they can make a, you know, like a gruel, but they, you can also make it, you can also grind it fine enough where you can make tortillas out of it. Mm, And, you know, that kind of flatbread out of a, a wild grain is something that's pretty exciting to me as well. And the, uh, you know, so when I have time, I'll do experiments with it. And it's funny because you can gather it and and I do, but what's funny is if you look at seed companies, they grow it as an erosion control plant. So you can buy big old bags of clean seed of Indian rice grass and work with it from there, which is a heck of a lot easier than, you know, spending three days gathering a, you know, mason jar full. Well, that's, yeah, that's cool because you're talking about getting fat on the desert and kind of this kind of brings me into that whole 
notion of the the biggest challenges in foraging is is those carbohydrates, right? And you say that you state that in your book, and that's through my own experience too, right? It's like we talk about this show about rewilding. I think the dewilding began because of carbohydrates, right? And, and agriculture and domestication, right? And um, so to be able to discover things that maybe we can start replanting or working with that sort of fill that gap uh, is pretty sure. exciting. I mean, yeah. Where you live, where you live, you've got, uh, I mean, there's Jerusalem artichokes that yep. grow in Ontario. Right. You've got Wapato, which grows in Ontario. Um, I mean, yeah, there's acorns. You talk a lot about acorns. acorns yeah. 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 You, basically you have a, a foundational starch mm-hmm. pretty much wherever you go. And we do have, wi- we do have wild rice in the Great oh, Lakes yeah. as well. Right. Of course. There yeah. you go. Wild yeah, rice. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is so again, you, like you, something I, I, I rarely, I seldomly forage, like thinking been foraging for well over, you know, five years or so. And it's normally greens, uh, and mushrooms essentially, but never, never getting into any carbohydrate sources. See, carbs are work. No matter what you do, carbs are work. Right. And this is why wheat won, basically. So I, I did an experiment a couple mm. years ago. So um, my girlfriend, Holly, was banding doves for the state in, back, in the backyard. So she had a trap out to ban the doves and put a band on them and let them go. So they could track dove movements and such. Well, to get them to hang out in your yard, you bait the yard. So you, there's this big seed mix. And so we checked lots of the seed mix in the backyard. And as it happens, these particular doves weren't super keen on wheat. So what happened was we had like a, a wheat patch in the middle of the yard that grew up over the winter. Mm. And it was about maybe six foot by six foot, not much bigger than that. And so I got fascinated by it as it started to set heads. And I looked into Neolithic methods of harvesting wheat, which at the start was just grab the stalk, pull upwards, and you pull all the the seeds with you and you put it in a basket. So long story short, I was able to, out of a six foot by six foot patch, harvest and winnow a full mason jar, you know, full quart mason jar of just, you know, ready to eat wheat. In about two hours. Hmm. And, you know, the amount of calories that is in a mason jar full of wheat, wheat berries is, is profound compared to virtually anything else. That sounds a lot easier than dealing with acorns. Oh, a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. and, and if I don't like you, um, I can burn your oak tree down and you're, you're hosed for, <laughs> right. for decades. Right. And if you don't like me, you can burn my wheat field down and I'll be back next year. Mm. And right. so that brings us like, that's one of the things that you touch on in your books is, um, yeah, uh, foraging, getting back in touch with nature, but also the, the diversity and variety of foods that we, we tend to eat if we're eating along these lines, even if we're just introducing one aspect of our dinner plate to have something uh, forged on it. We're introducing that diversity into our diet, right? Because these days, most people are living off of wheat, corn, soy, and potatoes, right? And some, and some maybe not so great four or five meats. Yeah. Which aren't necessarily raised particularly well. So by bringing in this variety, right, we're really feeding our gut microbiome in a different way. We're like feeding all those bugs in our gut so that we have a really 
healthier, more substantial immune system. All those things can come into play. It, you know, never mind just getting out to the bush and feeling great being out there. Yeah, I mean, there's a great example right where I live in Northern California. The 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 local group here that was indigenous to this area is called the Maidu, and the Maidu were recorded to eat over the course of a year 140 different plants. Wow. And I can pretty much guarantee you that virtually nobody listening to this podcast eats 140 different plants in one year. Right. Yeah, no. And that kind of diversity is just one example of, I mean, as, as a species, we're designed to eat a little of a lot, not a lot of a little. Mm-hmm. And not only is there, I mean, I primarily do it for culinary reasons just because I'm interested in the different flavors and, and colors and shapes and textures. Um, but as it happens, it happens to be a pretty healthy way to eat as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, I think as we talk about eating, let's uh, maybe switch gears here and get into uh, procuring diversity in my own diet because I think when I contacted you, I had said, I'm keen on getting into duck hunting and I love your duck recipes. If I had one last meal, Hank, if I were on death row, it would be duck. And the sad part is I've never tasted a wild duck before in my life. So, um, you know, we're talking about getting calories from nature. I think ducks are great because we can render fat from them. Um, you know, and these types of foods are kind of rare or, or precious, I guess, in the wild. So, I'm kind of curious, as someone who wants to get into duck hunting, um, tell us what you've learned in your uh, adventures duck hunting, and what would you tell to someone like me who's, you know, for me, duck hunting seems like very resource dependent. There's boats, there's dogs, there's decoys, there's all this stuff. So what, what would you maybe tell yourself if you were to re-get into duck hunting? Uh, if I was going to tell you, I'd say go west. I mean, yeah. You're, all your best duck hunting is in the prairie provinces. True. You know, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Al- Alberta has by far the best duck hunting. You have better limits too. Um, you know, I mean, the, if I were to tell a Canadian mm-hmm. who wanted to get into to waterfowl hunting to to really get get fat and happy quick, book yourself a guided hunt in Saskatchewan in September for the uh, snow geese that are eating dry peas. Yeah. They are incredibly fat and they're amazing, amazing, amazing birds. I mean, they're, most people hate on snow geese. They call them sky carp, but these particular geese will put on an enormous layer of fat and there's speckle belly geese in there too, that will put on a huge layer of fat by eating these dry peas and on their way down South. Mm -hmm. And I have seen unbelievably fat birds. And so, A, either the limits are, are liberal because there's too many snow geese. We could get into that if you want. Mm. Um, but the, li- the limits are liberal. Right. They, you're going to get high-quality birds. Um, and, you know, you just, it's, a, it's a cool hunt. Another really good northern hunt would be to hunt the Delta Marshes in Manitoba. Okay. And there, the the diver ducks are going to be higher quality than the puddle ducks, which is another sort of thing that's fairly unusual. The all of the puddle ducks I've shot in Manitoba around the Delta Marshes have been yeah they've been fine, but they just have not been as as well upholstered as the canvas backs and the yellow and the and the bluebills and the redheads. So, in terms of getting into it as a pursuit, mm-hmm. well, you need to be able to shoot skeet. Right. Um, that's you know, trap is for upland, skeet is for waterfowl. And, you know, you're going to need gear. 
it, it gets cold up there from what I understand. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> Without a doubt. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, duck hunting is very regional specific. So yes, the style of hunting where you live may be very different from even Manitoba or Newfoundland or Michigan or Alabama. And right. so it, it very, it helps to get in touch with what the local scene does. And I don't particularly exactly. know what the local scene does in, in Ontario. I bet well, there's a lot of big water and diver hunting on the lakes. That's mm-hmm. just it. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's boats involved. And that was, that was my kind of reason for my questions because there's, there's dogs and in, in boats involved often. And yeah, with that comes big, big price tag. So I was, uh, no, I appreciate that answer because I think you're right to say that, yeah, finding a, finding that trip or finding that magic spot, whether it be up north or out west in the prairies, I think that is the way to go about ducks. Um, this is a great example of just conversations around hunting or foraging. So for me, for example, growing up, I never really liked November or February growing up in southwestern Ontario. Pretty miserable months, uh, cold, rainy, wet. Uh, by the time February rolls around, you're, you're done, you're ready for summer. Um, but then I started hunting and November is deer season. And so now November is great. I love November. February sap starts running. I'm tapping the trees with my kids. We're drinking maple sap straight from the tree. February is beautiful. And now Hank, I have a desire to go to Saskatchewan. (laughs) Right. Well, that's the other thing you can, you, I mean, you're not, you haven't missed your spring snow goose season. Right. Like the, the Canadians just started a spring snow goose season in all the prairie provinces and it goes into like June or something crazy like that. Really? Yeah. They're migrating through here right now in Mm -hmm. in southwestern Ontario. I just posted something the other day about them all in a field. But, um, now when it comes to, we're talking about the fat, let's go back to the, uh, the resource that comes with these animals. Cause one thing I would love to maybe share some tools for folks out there. Me for one, I know Richard, he's uh, big on rendering his own bear fat, but when it comes to rendering fat from a bird, from a duck, let's say, what is, what is your tested and true method of going about that? Well, we have a video on YouTube. So if you do a video of how to render duck fat, nice. um, Holly made that video and it's very good. Okay. I'll put that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's only like a minute and a half. Right. Um, and that, that breaks it down real easy, but okay. I'll, walk you, I'll walk you through it. So in virtually every bird, the vast majority of the renderable fat is going to be in the Pope's nose, so the tail section. Um, so what we'll do is we will cut the whole tail off and clean it out because obviously the poop shoots there. Mm-hmm. And... And you maybe trim the, you know, it, it depends, you know, it depends on what you're going to do with it. But if you're just rendering fat, you just, you don't have to be very discriminate. You can just cut it up into pieces. I mean, obviously it should be clean. There will be fat in these inside of the cavity. There will be fat that surrounds the gizzard. And then the other main source of fat on any given bird is, so you've, you've plucked your bird, you've taken the tail off, you've gutted it. It's called clean and nice. So if I'm not going to cook this bird whole, and I will, and I'll be breaking it down into you know bags of wings and bags of legs and bags of uh, breast meat. What I'll you get trim. So when you have all of these bits, you'll have a bunch of skin and fat left over, like on the neck, on the back, you know, in various like on the. There's a little fat pad that's on the kind of the muffin top of a, of a duck, if you think of it that way. Okay. Um, and all of that can go into the rendering pile. And so on a very fat duck, you know, we, 
for us, sort of the king of that are, are speckle belly geese and pintail ducks, which could be morbidly obese, like super fat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so when they say don't feed the ducks at the uh, local pond, they really mean it, right? Uh, I think <laughs> when they say that, I mean, typically people are feeding them things that they shouldn't be feeding. Right, exactly, yeah. Like if you're going to feed the ducks at the pond, don't throw them bread. Throw them like peanuts and stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, but I, I I derailed you there on your uh, where we were going with the uh... and just you know once you have the fat, just cut it into little pieces, put it into a pot, cover it with water by about an inch, and mm-hmm. then get it to a boil. And you know, I won't, eventually that water will boil away, but by then enough fat will have rendered from the from the heated heated water that you'll have enough fat. And what you, you'll hear this the sizzle will change. It'll go from a boil to a kind of a sizzle. You turn the heat down and let it kind of render out until You'll get like a, a, typically it's yellowish, but sometimes it's pure white. Um, and it, at some point it will turn clear. And if it turns clear, then, then you're ready to rock. Um, I will take it a little bit longer to get every last bit of fat out of the, from underneath the skin. Mm-hmm. But once rendering fat turns clear, you're ready to go because that means there's no more water in it. I see. So you're on that low heat. And like you said there, you're kind of listening for that. Uh, you're listening for that right bubbling, I guess, of, of the fat, right? So you're not over burning it off, but, uh, just mm-hmm. that right temperature. Cause yeah, yes. because, because bird fat is such, is so low in saturated fat, you, you need the water. Um, okay. With, with bear fat, I find it's actually better to not add water because you get, you get weird sticky stuff like the collagen and the fat and the fat globs will stick to your pot and ruin it. Uh, I mean, yeah, you can clean it, but it's a big pain. So I just find that I will start with, you know, small, either I'll run it through a grinder or small chunks. And this is for pork fat too. And just start frying it, you know, not at a high temperature. And then you want, if you're, if you're doing bear or pork fat, you, you don't want the fat to get much over three, 350 ever because it'll start to smoke. And ultimately you're going to find that you're going to have to turn the heat down pretty low to do that. And your, your key to being done when you have cracklings is that they stop, they stop bubbling. You know that you've you have fried all of the moisture out of them, and they are crispy, crackly. Right. Who knows? We might be doing that soon, Richard, here in Ontario with the uh, wild hogs that are taking yeah. over around here. That'd be exciting, right? Um, yeah. One, I guess, one more thing in regards to duck. Duck confit is one of my favorite meals of all time. Um, now, however, like getting into from a rewilding lens, food preservation is obviously important. And duck confit, if I'm correct, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, but is it not a preservation mes- method, essentially? What, what is, I guess, duck confit for folks that aren't aware of my favorite meal? Um, yeah. So there's a lot of ways to go about doing duck confit. And I have three different methods in my duck and goose cookbook, right. which is duck, duck, goose. So the first method is the oldest method, and this is probably what you're referring to. Mm-hmm. So the oldest method is from southwestern France, although it's, it, there's evidence of it going all the way back to the Egyptians. Um, and it's basically you salt the hell out of, out of duck legs, or, and the French will do the whole duck. And, I mean, they'll even confit breasts, mm-hmm. which I don't. Mm-hmm. But you salt the hell out of it for like two days, and so it's pretty damn salty, and you've extracted quite a bit of moisture out of it. And then it is really poached in its own fat and to use this as a preservation method i mean this, this would work in canada because does you you get cold there is so you've you've finished your confit legs and they're they they shouldn't be falling off the bone but they should be thinking about falling off the bone so they're done 
So now you want to pour some of that duck fat. Well, okay, if you really want to do this right, so pull them out and let them cool off and then let that fat that they cooked in cool off because you're going to find like a layer of like gel underneath it. And this is the moisture that, the, that has been cooked off the legs. You got to get rid of that gel because if you keep it in your, in your jar, it will go bad and your whole batch will go bad. Now that said, it's delicious and put it in like a soup or whatever because it's, it's salty, ducky, you know, concentrated stock. So it's good to eat, but it's not good for preservation. So, all right, so you've got your done legs and you've got all your fat that they've cooked in. So you reheat some of the fat into your jar and you pour a layer in, maybe a finger thick, and let that cool off so that it's a, you have a solid fat bottom. So then you pack your legs into the it's, – it's traditionally done with stoneware crocs. Hmm. You pack your legs into the croc and then you pour enough fat over them to completely submerge them and so they're not touching on anything. It's a really good idea to make sure your your container is sterile before you do that. And so in that jar or in that stoneware crock, completely, you know, completely kept away from air, you could put it in your basement and it'll last for almost a year. And in mm-hmm. fact, the French don't even want to eat it till it's about six months old. Really? So here's the thing, though. When you pull it out, it's super salty. So you have to understand this is not the duck confit that you get in a, in a, in a store or that you normally make yourself. Ah. This is a specifically a preservation method. Right. And so they will sometimes refresh it in fresh water or they'll use it kind of like we would use a ham hock in the sense that it's the source of salt in something else. So if you, that's the preservation method. I see, but yeah. Most people will only salt the ducks over, uh, overnight. And oh. if you do that and then... Then you have a nice duck confit, put it under a broiler or, or bake it at 450 Fahrenheit. And, um, and then, you know, you crisp that skin afterwards. Mm-hmm. I knew I should have ate something before this podcast. <laughs> now I, I, I knew once we started talking about food, I'd get hungry. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about the, the less glamorous cuts. And I just want to tell a little story around this when I first started hunting. Um, and the first couple of deers that I shot, deer that I shot, they, I had to track them and find them. But the first deer that I shot and dropped in front of me and I, I witnessed it leave, uh, in spirit. Um, I thought it would be a really profound moment for me, but it, it wasn't, it was just get to business, right? Okay. It's done. Let's field dress this. Let's get moving. Um, and it wasn't until a day or so later that when I sat down to eat the, uh, the, uh, the heart tacos that I had made that I just started sobbing. It was just like I had this real visceral experience um, of like, wow, this, you know, this just happened. This animal died in front of me. I had this experience and and here I am sharing this with my family. And it was a really, really profound moment for me. And what was also really profound was how damn good the heart tasted. I was just blown away, right? I thought I was just kind of doing a really symbolic thing of, um, you know, eating the heart of the first deer that dropped in front of me. But in fact, that is kind of my favorite thing every year uh, come hunting season is to um, eat that heart as fresh as I can. Um, so I'm wondering if you could share um, maybe just some little tidbits in around some of the less glamorous cuts that some people might just be leaving in the bush or, uh, you know, not even thinking about putting on their plate. Sure. I think um, the easiest, the gateway, the go- gateway offal is always a heart and tongue. 
mm. because both are just meat. You know, they're not, they're not, I mean, technically they're sort of organs, muscle, but yeah, know, they're, right. they're just muscle meat. So both of them are very dense. And the only thing you need to do with the heart is you, you, you should trim most of the fat around that top edge because it's very, very waxy. Mm. And I like to open it up kind of like a book, you know, use the ventricles and slice around so that you open up into kind of, you know, uh, almost proto cutlets that I will then either pound with a jacquard, the, that thing with the, all the knives that you, you know what I'm talking about? It was like a lot of little blades. You go. Oh, yeah. And it right. Puts little holes in it. Right. Um, and then, or, and, or I will pound it between two pieces of plastics into a, into kind of a schnitzel or a cutlet. That's typically how I will serve heart. And at least it's the initial, the initial prep, no matter how I'm serving it. Um, bird hearts, I just cut in half or just do whole depends on the, the heart. Um, and then the tongue is, so the only thing you need to do with that is, is to simmer it in something. And then it's got a skin on it that you, it, people often get skeeved out by tongues because tongues can sometimes have color. So they, you know, there it is a skin on the outside of the tongue. And so sometimes it's darker, like there's a little black spots or whatever. Mm. And it's not that it's bad. It's just that that particular animal had a black tongue and you peel that off anyway. And then typically if you're going to serve tongue to somebody, it's a good idea to not serve them a tongue. Nobody wants to eat something that's <laughs> on the plate. <laughs> just put just put it on a little bit of like uh you know romaine lettuce or something like that. It's all oh, presentation. You right? could. Oh gosh. Be, yeah, you're right. That one the, that wouldn't go over so that. well. <laughs> and well, a regrettable food. Yeah. Um so those are the easiest ones for people to get at. Uh and in terms of birds, the gizzard and the heart is the, mm. run the same function. So all a gizzard is is just meat. So the easiest way to clean a gizzard is to imagine yourself holding a whole gizzard. It is two half circles of meat that are clutching an icky bit in the center, which is which is the grand the grinder plate. And so you use a paring knife, some, a sharp little knife, and all you do is you just carefully cut the pieces of meat away from the little bit, the icky bit in the center, and then you throw the icky bit away. And I see all these other methods of, of cleaning gizzards, including the one in Duck Duck Goose, which uh, is how I used to do it, and which are all stupid. This is the best <laughs> one. <laughs> all right. The new like stuff. This, we can clean gizzards, you know, and a woman from Arkansas taught me how to do this one, by the way. So, um, and it's like done. And so that's just meat. And again, it's very dense, like heart or, or, or tongue. And it needs long and slow cooking, but it's very, very good if you do that. Well, it sounds like so, you have to put on a second edition of the book now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, I know. Um, so in terms of the other stuff, typically you're now talking livers and everything. Right. You're talking kidneys and, uh, you know, I mean, there's yeah. some weirder stuff. Uh, I happen to like tripe quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and if I've shot a deer where I can get it to hang it and get it to a, a, a hose and a ranch real quick, I'll, I'll take the tripe out really? um, and, and I have detailed instructions mm. on how to do that in, in buck, buck moose, my, my venison cookbook. And it's, it's damn good. It's surprisingly good, but mm-hmm. it's, it's an, it's a bit of icky business that you, you'd have to kind of already be a tripe lover to want to do because you've got, you know, you're taking a stomach and you're hosing it off and, right. and, you know, it's got all the, the big green salad churning in the center of it. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's right. It, Initial process is kind of icky, but the uh, the end result comes, you know, the end result is some really, really, really good food. Kidneys, um, yeah, I kidneys. will 
cut them in half lengthwise. So you get like the two half bean looking things. And oh, there's a membrane around the kidneys, but you'll find it when you cut it in half and you remove that. And then the center of the kidney, you have what looks sort of like pinkish meat-ish stuff. And then there's some white, much, much harder bits in the center. I will do my best to trim out as much as that little white bits as possible because I, I don't much like the texture. So then, uh, unlike the English who don't seem to want to soak their kidneys, um, I always soak kidneys because I don't like eating piss. <laughs> so, um, you know, I soak them in a brine overnight and then I will soak them in milk overnight. I okay. do that double soak and that tames them to the point where I can serve a dish of deviled kidneys uh, and I've got that recipe on the website. Ooh, yeah. Um, and virtually nobody doesn't like them. Even Holly, who is an avowed kidney hater, actually likes them, which is which is a bonus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it seems like a harder one as we go down this list here. Harder to, uh, you know, tell people at a dinner party that, this, hey, this is what we're serving, right? But Well, you're Canadians. There's enough English people there for like, yeah, steak yeah. and kidney pie. Suck it up. That's, That's true. true. That <laughs> is that is very true. Well, let's, uh, on the thread here of, uh, you know, looking at things through a rewilding lens, we're talking about rendering fats. Um, one other thing is fermentation as far as like a – and I, we saw something – um, pickled walnuts. Mm-hmm. How, where did you get this idea? I saw that and I was like, oh, wow. Because Richard, you were saying you got a lot of yeah, walnuts really and it just seems uh, it seems like the way to go. So yeah, like maybe let's, I think that's probably new to a lot of folks out there. It's new to me. So yeah, what's that all about? So the first time I ever encountered pickled walnuts was at an Irish bar in Sacramento, <laughs> California. And they did a, an Irish charcuterie plate and there, there's this black thing on there. I'm like, what the hell is that? So I ate it and it was like, it was like eating nutty Worcestershire sauce, Mm. like nutty, like actually kind of almost nutty A1 sauce almost. And this is bizarre and I kind of like it. And and I asked what it was and he said it was pickled walnut. So I started to do some research and, you know, you've got people like Darina Allen in Ireland who does them. And then um, the, um, oh, what are the, uh, oh, the River Cottage books, the River Cottage books in England. It's a super English thing. Like it's basically this version of black uh, pickled walnuts is, is from the United Kingdom. And you take unripe walnuts. Right. That's a key, you know. And so in Ontario, you're talking June, I think. So you want them to be reasonably normal size, but you have to be able to use a paring knife and cut them right in half easy. If the shell's formed, you're too late. Mm-hmm. And... It's, it's kind of this interesting salting and then you, you air ferment them so that they turn black, they oxidize, mm. you know, they start as kind of army green and then, but as soon as they hit the, as soon as they hit the air, they, they turn black and then you just, you pickle them up and it's just this kind of interesting, you know, if you do it wrong and they get too soft you can puree them with a pickling liquid and then it really, really, really tastes like A1 sauce. It's pretty oh, trippy. Really? That's pretty cool. And I'm yes, curious, um, yeah, because the black walnuts are so plentiful around here, but mm-hmm. I, I I, have lacked the patience to pick away to get that meat out of them. It will not work with hickory nuts, by the way. Only it won't, walnuts. eh? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I'm curious, in, in your research in and around the pickled walnuts, any insight in terms of the what's going on nutritionally there? Because, you know, obviously with the nut itself, we're getting a lot of the fats. Um, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I, I will admit, yeah. I'll be the first one to admit yeah. that I don't do, I don't care about nutrition. Okay. Uh, like, I seem to be reasonably healthy. I haven't died yet. <laughs> um, it's all the, it's all the nature going, connection you're doing out there, Hank. You're in constant contact. Yeah. I mean, it could be. I, mean, <laughs> I believe. It's, just, it's, 
it's a uh i'm just i'm mostly interested in the culinary aspects of things and the fact that they seem to be healthier right. is a nice side bonus. I exactly. I'll be honest. I don't do a lot of research in terms of, of health benefits and nutrition. Okay. No. And that's just it. That's a beautiful thing because I think whether you're into that or not, it's, it's kind of happening by default. Right. So yeah. Staying young by staying out in the field without a doubt. Well, we're almost at the full hour here, Hank. And there's a couple more questions that I did want to ask you. Um, well, it's even on the thread of, of nature, nature relatedness. So my research as a PhD student, I look at the health benefits of time spent in nature. And yes, there is the biophilia, biophilia hypothesis, which basically says, yeah, we have uh, admiration or a need to be in contact with nature. So of all the things that you do in the outdoors, what brings you the most happiness? And by default, let's say health, but what, what do you, what do you love doing out the outdoors the most? I know we're talking about hunting here and cooking, but what is it that you love about the outdoors? I think the most primal, like, if I'm just going to be supremely honest, like yes. the thing that like gets my juices going the most is, is just absolutely sticking a fish. Yeah. Like, like getting that. Cause I mean, there's a hashtag on Instagram called the tug is the drug mm. and fighting a fish on a hook and line. And, and, uh, and, you know, for, for the record, I don't really do much catch and release. Um, like I, I fillet and release. Um, like I, I fish to eat fish. Like I don't fish to torture fish. Like, I hear you. Like, I mean, obviously I'm gonna let them go if they're they're too small and that's the law, but you know, I'm not, I'm not into the idea of, of catching a trout, looking at it and setting it back. I'd rather just not fish that fishery if you can't keep, keep a fish in there. Like, because if you can't keep a fish in a fishery, it suggests that that fishery is not healthy and I'd rather leave it alone than catch and release within it. Now that's just my choice. I'm not going to hate on anybody who who does do catch and release, that's fine. It's, it's their thing. But for me, having grown up on the ocean in the Atlantic mm-hmm. in Jersey, I don't know if you ever caught a bluefish, but if you've never caught a bluefish, um, it is one of the single most exciting fights that you can have as a regular human. Like you have to have some means to fish for sailfish and swordfish and big billfish like that. But anybody can catch things like, like a, like a, a bluefish in the, in the East coast or a big old pike where you live or, you know, uh, redfish are super belligerent in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. And like the, like that, ah, man, like it's just, it's, it's probably because I've been doing it longer than anything else. Right. Yeah. Like I will tell you that if you're duck hunting or bird hunting and you succeed at a difficult shot, that there's a, there's a thrill in that because it's not in the killing of the bird. In fact, it's, it's when you walk up on the bird that you're kind of bummed, you know, I mean, you realize the seriousness of it, but, but the, the, the success of doing something that you've set out to do that was very difficult is undeniably a rush. Um, and uh, other things would be finding like a mushroom Shangri-La, like constantly, if I'm in the, in the Sierra Nevada, looking for morels or looking for porcini, you know, you can walk. I mean, I, I'll often start just after dawn. And I mean, there've been plenty of days where I've been found one mushroom or two mushrooms. And then all of a sudden you cry on this corner and there's like 15 or 20 or 30 of them. And it's just that, you want know, to talk about a, a, a non animal related rush. That would be it. Like I get, I get more of a, kind of a primal satisfaction hunting mushrooms than I do with any other foraging Mm. activity. Well, except for clams, 
like because clams are technically foraging. Like if you wanted to find foraging as the mm-hmm. is searching for things that don't run away, which is really what I I do. Like right. if it can't run away, it's foraging. Um, and so clams fall into that because also because I've been digging clams since I was like two. Clams feel like money. <laughs> like they're heavy for their size and they, they clank together in your hand a little bit different and mm-hmm. they feel great when your toes wrap around them. And like, there's something like, yeah, that's money, dude. <laughs> so yeah. like, those are the kind of things that give me, you know, that gambler's rush, you know? Right, yeah. And you, you know, it's, it, it, I guarantee you most people listening to this podcast have something like that. Yeah. Now there are people who feel ashamed of it, which I think is, is sad, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm sorry. Like you're, you're hardwired to hunt and fish and forage. This is what our species have been doing for 190,000 of our 200,000 years as a species. So there's a lot of hardwired stuff going on in there. No, it was, uh, and I mean, that's why I bring up my story in hunting because there was so much going on there that I don't even have uh, conscious awareness of. But when I had helped my brother, you know, field dress and then go and eat that first deal deer, it was, there was something, there was a thread that connected me deep into something I didn't know that was possible. And it's kind of what drove me to want to do this podcast. Cause I feel there's so many other men in their thirties, generation Y generation, doesn't matter which generation, but so many folks out there that are looking to, I think they've lost something, whether it's the connection with nature or this primal urge that we don't get to fulfill, especially as men too, right. Uh, as being prim- primarily as uh, the hunters, right? So I just think it's, and, and again, nowadays. I think everybody has it. Right? I don't yeah. think it's, I don't yeah. think it's just, I think, I don't think it's just a man, man thing. Sure. I think everybody has No, it. you're right. And you definitely are right to say that. I'm, I guess I'm just more so seeking, speaking towards uh, in the history books of as to men being hunters primarily. But of course we know there are female hunters. So um, yeah, and again, like I think many men out there, they're only into duck hunting, might ever will only ever be duck hunting that Nintendo video game, right? So and that's just, that's unfortunate. You know what another piece of this is that I think is important for hunters, especially and fit, anglers too, but especially for hunters is to process your own animals. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody, almost everybody cuts their own fish, but the, the other piece to this is like, cause the, the killing part is the hardest part because it's a, it's a stark realization that no matter what your dietary choices are, something dies because of it. For sure. You know, whether it's, plowing a field that it was once habitat to harvesting a field. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen a combine work in, in a wheat I've field. Been, like, I've been on them. Yeah. The amount of mice in a potato field, the amount of mice oh, that you yeah. dig up every time you turn. I mean, literally there's two, two mice every, every turn. So yeah. For sure. Yep. So, you know, when you're a hunter, you're faced with that dead on, so to speak. And that's the hard part. Right. And then there's the icky part of like blood, blood and the and all that other stuff. Like you just have to do it. It's just, that's just the, the, the job you were talking about before. Just get it done. Mm-hmm. But the part that I, the process of turning uh, a carcass into future meals right. is always like opening up a present to me. So you get not, not only get you, do you get a chance to really take control of how this animal is going to get eaten because you butchery is an intensely personal process. You cut an animal depending on how, what you're going to do with it. And every culture does it differently and every individual does it differently. But you also get a chance to really get your first look at embracing that chaos that we talked about in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Where is this an old animal? Is there some damage from hunting or fishing to the animal? Like, is there a gaff hole or, is, or did I shoot the shoulder out or whatever? Right. Yeah. Is it, is, is it is a very old animal? Is it what species of it in terms of if you're doing something like ducks? Um, and you start mm-hmm. to get into this... It, 
kind of a mental plan of what is going to be the ultimate fate of this, of this animal? Like, is it going to be like, I know guys who shoot eight, nine deer a year in, in the American South and they're having like whole deer. They're like, that's my jerky deer. And that's my, my ground meat deer because the deer are so plentiful down there. They, they can pretty much do the whole deer in one wow. thing, but most of us are not like that. So the, the future, the projection of the future meals on a fish or a bird or, or a deer or something like that, I find that so intensely satisfying that there's got to be something going on beyond, you know, beyond what I just described. There, I mean, I have right, to yeah. think that there's some sort of a hardwired element to that. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Well, I got one final question. Richard, you got anything to go? No, I just want to say thank you for sharing uh, yeah. your passion because it's really apparent just, you know, welcome. how your um, your voice perks up when you're talking about that morale patch. And, um, you know, that's kind of touching on, uh, I think, a lot of what Sean and I mm-hmm. feel and experience and hopefully our listeners too. So I just want to say thank you for your time and your passion and all the awesome recipes. Yeah. Keep them coming. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. Well, the last question I have for you, as someone who is a lover of the outdoors and obviously has much respect uh, for these resources and learning from them, I have to ask, what is your wildest dream for the earth here? We live in, you know, crazy times, you could say. We don't need to go there. But what is your wildest dream for the earth? I don't know. I've never been asked that question. It's a deep question. Um, It can change every day, too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I mean, I... To stop fucking it up. <laughs> there you have it. Simple. That's, that's a bumper sticker right there. I think that's, that's probably that, the easiest thing. That's, that's going to be the quote for this episode, Hank, right there. Stop <laughs> fucking it up. I love it. <laughs> right on. But I hear you. And that is exactly why I wanted to get you on to tell your story and share your experience into the wonderful world of hunting, angling, foraging, and cooking. You do it so well. And as Richard said, it, you are a real OG as we would say, I guess, someone who's been at it for a long time and, and I greatly respect everything that you do. So thank you so much for being here, Hank. Um, tell folks where they can find more about you if they're looking uh, looking to find some of your books or any of that stuff. So uh, I have four cookbooks and I have a, a general cookbook we've referred to, uh, that one's Hunt, Gather, Cook. And then I have uh, subject-specific books. I've got one that deals with ducks and geese. And that's called buck or duck, duck, goose. Then I have a venison and sort of all things antlered. So moose and elk and that sort of thing. That one is buck, buck, moose. And then my latest book is deals with all the upland birds and the small game. So rabbits and squirrels and pheasants and that sort of thing. And that is pheasant, quail, cottontail. And all of these books are available uh, wherever fine books are sold, which I'm very happy to say. And they're widely available in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. And online, I run the website Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook, and that is huntgathercook.com. And that is kind of the core of what I do. There's, I've been running that website since 2007, and there are well over 1,500 recipes for all things wild on the site. And finally, the, there are two places in social media where I spend my, my time, and one is on Instagram, I am huntgathercook, and then... On Facebook, I run a private closed group called the Hunt, Gather, Cook Forum. And you have to answer some questions to get into that group. Just tell them that you heard me on the Rewild podcast and I will let you in. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, You know, you're going to have to come up with a 
more fresh rhymes for your next book here. Cause at this point, I don't know how you're going to keep going with all the rhyming. I know there's one more. It's uh, so I'm working on a fish and seafood cookbook right now. And, and so I, I have to decide if I'm going to do a oh, triplet boy. name or if I'm going to do something different. All right. Well, I won't ask you for a sneak peek, sneak peek. I will wait for that to come out. So, but yeah, thanks so much for being here, Hank. And I thank everybody out there for listening. Please do check out Hank's content. He's been doing it for years and there's some really good stuff over there. So until next time, stay wild. Thank you for listening to the Rewild My Bio podcast. Please subscribe to the show and leave a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this episode. I would greatly appreciate it if you shared the show with your friends, if of course you think they would like it. You can also visit rewildmybio.com to download previous episodes and sign up for the newsletter. In the newsletter, I share blogs and bonus content from my health promotion research, along with practical tips to help you rewild in a modern world. Please follow along on Instagram and Facebook at RewildMyBio and on Twitter at Sean Slade. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, stay wild.